Man, I love that song. And release the kingdom's power uh, in and through us. The song gets me ready to go, like change the world for Jesus, right? Uh, I, I know a lot of our folks are traveling for spring break, and they're gone. I want to welcome those. I know people right now are joining us live stream from from the road, from homes, from the beach, from lakes, uh, hospital beds, and we welcome them into our worship service. Uh, I also know there are a lot of faces I saw uh, walking in who I've never met before. I hope to get the chance to meet you and that our church can just learn more about you, just who you are and what it is we can do to pray for you and encourage you. Um, uh, my family, we're heading out today. We're going to Texas. My, my Texas family, they're waiting on us to arrive for a brisket barbecue, for a dessert at my brother's house, and for my 16-year-old niece to be baptized tonight. Uh, so, I, um, and I, I'm assuming some of you are clapping for all three of those things, right? Uh, I, I mean, my family here, we, we love our pork. I could eat pork. I could pound pork every single day. But when we get back to Texas to taste a, a good, uh, juicy Texas brisket, we're excited about it. But I want you to know I'm fully present in this sermon and really excited about being with you today. Uh, yeah. I look forward to see what God's going to do over the next few minutes. Uh, we're in this series we started last week called Risk. Uh, I'm excited about this series because I think it speaks into the life of our church, what God wants of us as a church. We only know how to risk because Jesus has modeled what risk is. He doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done. He doesn't ask us to go somewhere he has not already been or where he currently is not. Uh, And when the church learns to risk, I feel like we are keeping in step with the Spirit. We are um, living... And the nucleus of the mission of God, we're at our very best. And when the church fails to risk, what happens is the church can get so focused on uh, structure, formulas, patterns, uh, that we aren't as focused on the mission. We get focused on the Sunday morning structure. And what happens when we do that is we come up with this plan and we feel like we have figured it out and now we need God to play by our rules. But God doesn't like playing by the church's rules. God wants the church playing by his rules. Uh, So I was reading a book a while back. Some of you read it, Donald Miller's book, uh, Blue Like Jazz. It was a bestseller over a decade ago. And towards the end of that book, he got really personal, vulnerable. And and one thing he talked about was he he had fallen in love with this girl, and it was a relationship that they were in, and uh, he wanted the relationship to move quicker than it was. He was ready for marriage, uh, at least to be getting, working towards marriage. But it wasn't going that fast because she wasn't at the same pace he was at. And what he found himself doing was he was so obsessed with this relationship, so emotionally attached that he wasn't eating, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't sleeping well, constantly distracted. And I don't want to make light of this because I know some of you in this room right now find yourself in maybe a similar place in some kind of relationship or uh, there's just a relationship in your life and it doesn't have to be a, a husband, wife or a, heading that way, just some relationship where you were so distracted by that relationship that he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. And he had one of his friends at church who, had, who knew another lady at the church. And he said, you need to go sit down with her. She's not a certified therapist. But what she does is she loves listening to people and where they are in life. And she likes to speak life into you. So he sat down with her, started walking through what his life was like, all the stress in his life. And this woman, uh, what he said was, is something wrong with me? And he was expecting her to say, no, you're fine. What you're feeling right now is normal. But she didn't. She said, yes, something is wrong with you. And he said, I knew it. I knew I'm just crazy. I knew I'm a wacko. And, and she said, well, some of that may be true, all right? 
but here's what has happened to you. You have allowed this woman to name you. You have allowed her to determine your value. And that is something only God can give. Uh, can you think of a time in your life when you have let someone else name you and determine the value for you? It could be a lover. It could be a parent. It could be a form of abuse. I bet some of you could think of in this last week things in your life that you have allowed to name you and determine your value. It could be a boss, a job, a relationship, a number of different things. You've allowed that thing to name you. Some of you are allowing your past to name you. Some of you are allowing a fantasized future of what you would like for life to be like to name you. Maybe abuse, tragedy, forms of darkness. And the good news this morning is God names, and not only does God name, God renames. And when God names or when God renames, he does it for the sake of mission and commissioning. And let me show you how this plays out in the Bible. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. uh, And we're going to begin in verse 13 today. Uh, The beginning of Matthew 16, I'm not going to go through this, but in uh, what what has happened is Jesus is warning his followers, and he's warning them about uh, the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, you may not know your Bibles well this morning. I don't know the Bible knowledge of the average person in this room Uh, The Pharisees and Sadducees, you don't need to know who they are to get into heaven. Just know that they were people who taught about religion. And they were people who had an idea of God. And sometimes when we think Pharisees and Sadducees, we may think heresy. And they they weren't teaching a lot of heresy. What Jesus was against was their teaching was not promoting and leading to spiritual formation and spiritual development. So he's warning them against the teachings of Pharisees and Sadducees. And then we get to this place in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Follow along in your Bibles, on your phones. Uh, I want you to underline what sticks out to you, what it is you may want to revisit later and study a little deeper. Beginning, Beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. At that moment, he didn't want them to tell them. Let me, I want you to see just a progression in this quickly. Three moves from Jesus, all right? Write these down, take notes. Don't trust your mental notes, because I don't know if I trust your mental notes, because I don't trust mine, all right? But this will give you some stuff to talk about later at lunch, at dinner, life groups, wherever you are. The first thing Jesus does is he asks them, who do people say I am? It's a broad question. Like, what do people say about me? When my name is brought up in conversations, how does that conversation go? Who are people comparing me to? What are the things they say? And when Jesus asks this broad question of who do people say I am, the response is some people think you're Elijah, some think you're Jeremiah, some John the Baptist, some an ancient prophet of long ago. That, that right there puts Jesus in great company, fantastic company, with some of the great prophets, some of the great people of the Bible. But Jesus doesn't belong in the company of the great people of the Bible. He's greater than the great people of the Bible. The great people of the Bible bow down to the name of Jesus. They need Jesus to be saved. 
So Jesus asked this broad question, who do people say I am? And then, as you read earlier, as Kip read earlier, Jesus asked a much more specific personal question. Not just what do people out there say that I am, what about you? Who do you say I am? And there are a lot of different ways Peter or any of the apostles could have answered that that would have been correct. But Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the first time in the Gospels that a disciple calls Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. That is a term, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's a term given to whoever it was coming to bring the fulfillment of the kingdom of God into the world. Uh, It's the first time a disciple mentions it. And then Peter says, you're the son of the living God. Now, that is a statement that had been given to the emperors. Emperor Augustus called himself the son of God. It was on coins of the first century world. It was on their equivalent of billboards. It would hang around the Roman Empire that the emperors were the sons of God. They claim to be that. So now Jesus has trained them, and now Peter's making a a statement that is a little political in nature, where the, the emperors aren't the sons of the living God. It's Jesus who is the son of God. He is greater than all the emperors. He's greater than Rome. So it goes from who do people say I am, which is really broad, to who do you say I am, which is really personal. And then the next move from Jesus is let me tell you who you are. All right, now I'm going to define you. I'm going to tell you what your name is. In this case, it's not just giving him a name. It's renaming Peter. All right, from now on, you're not just going to be Simon. You're going to be Peter, which is rock. All right, so Jesus renames him. Now, if you know your Bibles very well, (coughs) excuse me, you know there are times where, where people are renamed. And when people are renamed, it's for the sake of mission. This happens with Abraham, with Sarah. Uh, uh, It it happens throughout the Bible a few different times. And now Peter's given this new name, which is Peter, which isn't just the name he carries. It's going to say something about his mission, what God has called him to be about. Now, with the church, when God names the church as children of God, this is more than just an identity we carry. It's a mission that we're called to live out. That you were given a brand new name by God and that name comes with an assignment and with a task and with a mission. So this isn't always the progression of God, but I bet in your life you could think of times when you, before you came to faith, you were wrestling with who is Jesus among all the great people of the world? Who is God among all the other gods? There comes a time in your life when it has to become more personal because other people can't always make faith decisions for you. It becomes personal. You've got to make a faith decision for yourself. Who do you believe Jesus is? There has to be a confession that comes from you. And with that, God renames or names. Now, sometimes God names or renames before confession so that you're responding to that confession. But these three movements are still the movements of God in this place and in your life. Who is God to you? Who is Jesus? Who, do, who does the world say he is? And you need to know what God says about you. Now, back up to verse 13. Let me go back to this because I think that this is going to get right at so much of the heart of the church. I hope this is helpful and hopeful for you. In verse 13, how it begins is, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, I want to stop right there. I remember four or five years ago, I unpacked this in a sermon for you, but this is, this is too good for you to miss out. Because sometimes we read that so fast that we don't understand what the district of Caesarea Philippi was all about. So get ready to take a few notes. I think this is really good. It will change how you read Matthew 16. I think it will change how you read even the book of Acts and how you think about the church. Caesarea Philippi was a place that was, you did not go through Caesarea Philippi to get to anywhere important. 
So any, any mover to Caesarea Philippi is because you were going to Caesarea Philippi. It was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. That's a long ways. Put it into perspective like this. If you were standing in downtown Memphis, exit 25 is where Arlington is. Imagine walking from downtown Memphis to exit 25. <clears throat> now, if you were taking a stroll like this, you know, this fast, I mean, it's going to take you a good 12 to 14 hours. If you're doing an Olympic speed walk, which is one of those, you know, one of these, it's going to take you a, you know, maybe you do it in a little short. I would just want to rename that to not the speed walk, but the who's going to get to the bathroom first walk, you know. Uh, if you're at a faster pace, it's going to take you six, eight, ten hours. It is a day's walk. It's a long ways away. And Jesus takes them all the way to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this isn't just any city. This was a place in the Old Testament of Baal worship. It's where they would worship false gods. It's where King Jeroboam built high places. It was where the nation of Israel bumped up against the Gentile world. It's uh, Herod Philip came in to that place and he renamed the city, which is how it came to be known as Caesarea Philippi. After all, if you have power, money, and influence, you can rename towns and cities after yourself. And when Herod was there, what he did is he rebuilt or he built a marble temple. In the first century world, he built a marble temple to a pagan god. After 70 AD, a few decades after Jesus ascended into the heavens, Emperor Titus came along where there were Jews who were being held captive in Caesarea Philippi. And what they did is they threw this festival where they threw Jewish captives to wild beasts and they made them fight each other to death in arenas. This was a city that was stamped with Rome's power, Rome's approval, Rome's message. It's a city that on the way there, you would hear about the emperor, uh, I mean, the, the god uh, Jupiter, who was thought to determine human affairs. Yet Jesus was taking them there to teach them that Jupiter doesn't determine human affairs. Jesus determines human affairs. That Rome isn't God's agent to spread the kingdom throughout the world. That Jesus is going to be God's agent to spread the kingdom throughout the world. In Caesarea Philippi, you had this huge wall. Show it up on the screen if you don't mind. <clears throat> and this wall would be over 100 feet high, hundreds of feet wide. Some of you have been to Caesarea Philippi. You've seen this wall. Now, up on the screen is a picture that the apostle uh, Andrew took with his cell phone when they were walking into Caesarea Philippi. Peter tried, but when he did, it said his storage was full. No room for photos, all right? <laughs> Don't you hate when that happens? Uh, but it was something like this. We're up against that wall where these pagan temples... And there was a lot of immorality, awful things that would happen there. All right, if you look way over here to my, to my, your left, my right, you can see this temple way over there. And behind it, you can see a cave. That's a cave that some of you have, if you've been there, you, you've seen that cave. If you go to that next picture, you can even see, I mean, this is a picture taken not too long ago, where you can still walk to the mouth of that cave. It's hundreds and hundreds of feet deep. And back then, they didn't know how deep it was because no one wanted to explore it because what the people of Caesarea Philippi had begun to believe is that in that cave is where the, 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 the awful gods, the evil gods lived. It's where they dwelled. They thought that that was the gate to the underworld. They thought it was the gate to Hades. So what they would do to pacify some of those scary gods that they believed in is that they would sacrifice animals and sometimes sacrifice their own babies by throwing them into the cave, as if by doing that, they're satisfying these evil gods. We may think that's crazy, yet when we reflect back on our lives, we're going to see ourselves sacrificing and worshiping some stupid gods too, right? 
All right, so they would do stuff like that in that cave. They believed it was the gate to the underworld, the gate to the... Uh, sometimes they would believe it was the gate to Hades, right? Which is what Jesus addresses there. Now, in, in Caesarea Philippi, I mean, this is like the red light district of the first century world. There was all kind of immorality, sexual immorality that would go on there. And if you were a Jew and you were raised by Jewish parents going to synagogues, I mean, you were taught to never go to Caesarea Philippi. I, I, was Jesus is leading them there at some point, they're like, man, we're going outside the town and we're going down a road where we were trained growing up. Don't you ever go past this point. Moms taught their kids, if we ever catch you in Caesarea Philippi, you're going to be grounded for months. It was like getting caught at Hooters when you're 16 or 17. Or, or, or getting caught at Coyote Ugly, or getting caught at, I, I don't know, Captain D's, all right? I mean, that's a bad example, okay? <laughs> I like Captain D's. Extra crunchies are the best, all right? Um, but as they're walking there, I mean, surely Peter and Andrew and James and John looked at each other, and they're like, man, we were taught never to go. Peter was married. And I'm sure at some point Peter's like, man, if, if my wife knows I've been here, we're going to be in counseling for months and Jesus takes them all the way to this place known for immorality and pagan worship. The, the main, the primary god of uh, Caesarea Philippi was a god named Pan, P-A-N. Pan was half human, half goat. How they came up with that, I don't know. If I'm going to like put a human with an animal, you know, to be, I'm going to be like, let me be half human, half lion, right? Half human, half grizzly. Half human, half cobra. Who's going to choose to be half human, half goat? But Pan was a god of panic, a god of chaos, a god of fear. Pan was the god of fertility. Uh, he was the god that when things were born into the world, they wanted Pan to shepherd their people. But it was a city full of panic. And the God that they worshipped more than any other God was the God Pan, P-A-N, who was a God of panic. And what they would do in these walls of the city is they would form these niches, kind of like windows. If you go to that next picture, you can see them that are still today. And in those little niches, they would place gods that they either formed and built with their own hands or that they purchased with their own money, and they would put them up in those niches as a way to worship the gods. So if you walk through the streets of Caesarea Philippi, you are seeing, smelling, you're touch, you could reach out and touch all these pagan gods, pagan worship. So why in the world does Jesus lead his followers to Caesarea Philippi to teach them about the kingdom? When he could do that same exact teaching back in Judea, Jerusalem, somewhere else. But he went all the way to Caesarea Philippi to do it. And Caesarea Philippi, Pan was the one they worshipped as a fertility god. Yet Jesus is the one who came into the world to bring true new life. Pan was the one that they worshipped as the god who would shepherd the flock. Yet Jesus was coming as the one who was the great shepherd of his people. And Jesus took a risk. By leading his followers all the way to this city known for evil and immorality. And it's there that he asked them the question, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And as Jesus asked those questions, maybe they found a place inside, but if they were outside, even outside the city, they could see the God Pan. They could see the pagan temples. And as they look around in immorality, they begin reflecting on who Jesus means to him and what he means to the world. 
And it's Peter's confession that you were the son of the living God. You were the Messiah that causes Jesus to respond by saying, okay, and here's how I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build it on a rock. And you're no longer going to be Simon, you were Peter. Now, this has been interpreted differently depending on what Christian church faith tradition you were raised in. For some people, their interpretation of this is that Peter represents all Christians, that all Christians make this confession and Jesus is expanding his kingdom through that place. For some, it was uh, Jesus is going to build his church upon Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of the living God. For some, it's interpreting that when Jesus talks about the rock, he's talking about himself, that that the church is going to be built on Jesus. And then for some, it is that Peter becomes the model bishop, the first of all bishops, and that that is what Jesus was saying there. Um, for me, I kind of go somewhere with the two or the three. Of course, Jesus is building the church upon himself. But there's this confession that Peter makes that Jesus builds on. And it's the confession that the church still makes. Jesus, you're the son of the living God. And what Jesus can do with a confession like that can change the world. Jesus builds on Peter's confession. Because to build a church on that confession is to teach a church what they really are. That they are the ones who have been called out, the community of God, the church, even when we are faced with conflict and threats throughout the world, we don't forget what our mission is. And what Jesus tells them is the gates of Hades will not prevail against the movement of the church. And understand that gates is a defensive posture. Right? When you're fighting on the playground and someone talks about your mom, you don't say, hold up one second, I'm going to go get my gate so I can hurt you. Right? When you watch the news, people don't get gated to death. Right? This isn't a weapon of offense, a defensive posture. Jesus is saying that the gates of Hades are setting up this gate because the gates of Hades is fearful of the church, understanding what its mission is as the church moves into the world. Jesus is preparing them to live with a mission that even when we are faced with the storms of hell and the storms of life, we know Jesus has given us a mission to keep going, to move forward, that his power allows us to overcome the worst evils. There are two places in the Gospels when the word church is mentioned. And when the church is mentioned, there is also language. The only time you have language of things being loosed and things uh, being bound, that the church has greater authority than I think most of us realize. And Jesus talks about the keys being given. Keys give access. They give us a way. And the church has to understand that we are not a fortress that is called to only function in a way where we keep people safe. We may be a fortress where people are healed back to life, a fortress where we understand what God's protection is, but the church is a fortress only in a sense that we are an equipping ground. We're a staging ground that's helping people understand what their assignments are. When we come together in this place, it's not so we can leave and say, man, that was a great worship service. It's that we can be equipped to leave here, understand that God is not just in a church waving people in the outside to come into here. He's outside of the church waiting for the church to come and join God and what he's doing all throughout the world. So um, I've got a couple of questions that lead us to tables today for prayer and reflection. And these are questions for today. They're also questions and prayers we can build on in the weeks to come in this series. And if you will, let's show those uh, up on the screen. If you go to that next slide. And we have two tables set up over here to my right and over here to my left in between the pews. You'll see those tables. And, and on both sides, there 
is a question, a question over here to my right. On one table, you'll find how is God calling you to risk? And on the other table, what is keeping you from taking a risk with God? And we're going to sing a couple of songs, and I want to invite you just to reflect on those and to move to a table and to write it out. Give me and give our leadership something we can pray for over the next few weeks because we believe that God is calling us to live this adventurous faith. So as we sing these two songs, we invite you to those places. I want to invite the shepherds and prayer leaders, if you will, go ahead and take your places to receive people. Because as you make your way to tables, you may find one of our leaders there. When I was growing up, when I started to drive uh, in high school, so from 16, 17 to 18, anytime I went on a date or I went to parties or I went to hang out with friends, my mother would meet me at the front door and she would give me a hug. And the last thing she would say, and I've heard this countless times, she would say, Josh, before you go out that door, you need to remember whose you are. You were God's and you were mine. Now, who wants to go out and do something crazy when their mom leaves that with them? You're God's and you're mine. And I think it was her way of both blessing me but also striking fear in me of you better honor the name of God and you honor the Ross name in whatever you do. And as we stand and worship, as we move the tables, remember whose you are. You were Jesus's. You wear his name. You've been given his mission. And let's live like it this week. If you need someone to pray with, if you need shepherds to pray with you, you see where people are around this room. Women are here to receive women. We have Patrick in the back. We have a married couple. If there's some of you who want to go and receive prayer from them, over here to my right, Rick Gillespie's here to receive you. If there's something you want to bring before this church, let's stand together. Let's sing these songs and make your way to tables.